You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, welcome. I'm so glad to see you guys here this morning, especially on this like rainy, doldrummy, kind of like January day in Northeast Ohio. This is why we live here, right? It's not for the football. <laughs> Sorry. Slide that one in there. So, no, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here. It is very, very good to see you this morning. Also, for those of you joining online, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here. We're going to get right into it this morning. This is our first week uh, in the book of Proverbs. Six-week series, like you just saw up there. We're going to hit some topics. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but I'm very, very glad that you're here and um, very, very glad that you've chosen to be with us this morning. We've subtitled this teaching series, um, Proverbs, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. And I think that's a very apt way of seeing where I hope we're going to go together these next six weeks. Um, I'm excited to give in, uh, or get into Proverbs for a couple of reasons. And um, I think just as we're kind of framing this series up a little bit and um, kind of getting acclimated to this book. I'm going to give you just four reasons why I'm kind of pumped about it. So um, first, this is this time of year, right, where we, we kind of look in the rearview mirror of last year and we say, man, how could I do this next year better? Uh, we make these things called New Year's resolutions, which are probably already dead by this point, if you're like me. Um, but we look at all these like very, you know, I think very common things in life, and these are the topics we're going to be hitting at, um, you know, these next six weeks together. How we use our words, how we think about our money, how we handle conflict, parenting, relationships, and then how we make decisions. I think these are very common things that we want to do well. We want to honor God with those or with those topics and those ideas in our life. There are places for God to work in our lives, and there are places that we can bring beauty and goodness to our world. Another reason that I'm, I'm excited about it is I think about those topics, words, money, conflict, parenting, relationships, and decision-making. These are topics and subjects for which our world has supplied no lasting answer or no solution. And um, just to keep it above the news feed, if, if, if you can imagine those six topics swirling in your head again, don't you feel the need to bring God's wisdom to those places? I do. I don't just want to be static in our world. I want to actually bring goodness and beauty according to God's wisdom in those places. Another thing I'm excited about is that, that Proverbs, as we'll see this morning, Proverbs is a book that's written for everybody. This is not an elitist book. A lot of times when you read God's word, if you're like me, you start off with like a genealogy or like if you're in Leviticus, you're like, oh my goodness, how, how do I make sense of this thing? Proverbs, we get imagery about like home and life and farm and community and neighbors and marriage and friendships. This is like an every moment holy kind of book. All of your life is shot through with the potential for wisdom. And the point of Proverbs is to show us how to bring God's wisdom to all these places in our life. So men, women, young, old, you've been walking with Jesus for five minutes or five decades. Proverbs is a book for you. But probably the reason that I'm, I'm most excited to get into Proverbs these next month and a half or so for us has to do with how we see ourselves in our world. I'm willing to bet that many of us want to see change in our world. 
with me in that? Maybe you, you, you're fired up and you go, oh, I want to see things get better. And it comes from a place that's a little hot inside of you. Maybe you're at the spot right now where I know many are, where we're just going, oh, I'm just tired, I'm wore out. I want to see our world changed. And here's the insight that God's word gives us, is that people in our world, our world itself, is not changed by you know, blog posts or news things or anything like that. What changes our world is people. And what changes people is God. And so if that's part of where you are, and if you feel that way, if you have a similar conviction, I think this is going to be a great six weeks together. So quick little bit of housekeeping uh, before we get into it. We're going to frame some context, and we'll eventually get to a text this morning, I promise you. So uh, for those of you that are watching online this morning, um, we did what a lot of churches did, uh, I guess, a couple of marches ago, uh, where we, we took our, our church services, our worship gatherings online. And a lot of churches were able to do that, and it's a great offering, especially for those that can't or aren't able to join us uh, in person in these days. And so I just want to let you guys know, for you in the room and those of you watching online, we don't believe that engaging your church online makes you a second-class Christian. If you are at home this morning and you're watching, um, I'm just glad you're here. And if you're in the room, I'm glad you're here. Um, this is, these are exciting days to be a church in our world, and church includes you. And so I just want you guys to know that. Online's not going away. This is an exciting thing. And I commend that to you guys, especially those of you in the room, that you just need to know that, that we care for you, and we're going to be church no matter where that is. It's part of how we think as a church. So today... We're getting into what Proverbs says about our words, what we say, what we write, what we text, and what we type. Hmm. So, just a little structure for this morning. Uh, we're going to get three principles from God's Word about Proverbs, and then we're going to talk about three applications that kind of correspond with those principles. But first, a little context about Proverbs, how we're going to approach this thing. So, Proverbs belongs to a, um, a book or a group of books in the Old Testament called wisdom literature. Say wisdom literature. There you go. There's five of them. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And they're all written a little bit differently than most of the Bible. If you read Old Testament or New Testament, a lot of times you find yourself in a narrative or a story. Uh, if you read Paul, right, in the New Testament, the letters especially, Paul, he writes like direct. He writes very clear commands, and he has this like great lawyer's mind that's built on this linear sequential thought, right? Well, Proverbs especially is very different. Uh, we don't get stories most of the time. We don't get linear thought where it's this thoughtfully thing, this big architectural argument. Instead, we get sayings. We get these little quippy things, and we're going, How do, what do we do with it? If, if the genres of the Bible were like art forms, you could imagine that Paul would be like an architectural drawing, like a blueprint. It's like measured. It's, it's thoughtful. It's, everything is very, very succinctly laid out. It's very, very specific. I like to imagine that Proverbs is a little bit more like a watercolor painting. It's still intentional. It's still very beautiful. You look at it, and it's simple at first. But the more you look at it, the more you see and that's kind of the art and the beauty behind Proverbs. And so born out of that, we're going to take our cues. This series is really going to be three things, and I want to hit them for you really quickly. First, we're going to be practical. Proverbs is built for practicality. 
The book is what the title suggests. It is a collection of wise sayings. And this, this helps you. Reading through Proverbs is a little like sitting next to a campfire with a wise grandpa. As he just kind of like spins out the things that he has learned in his life that have benefited him. And of course, we know that behind this, this isn't just a wise grandpa. This is God who's speaking. This is the word of the Lord. We do this stuff all the time, though, in our culture, right? Help me out. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and? There you go. We do this stuff a lot. I was talking to somebody this morning, and I said, inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's hard. It was like my grandpa said that one. It happened that I was talking to a football coach when I said that this morning, and he goes, yard by yard is like my thing. I'm like, oh, okay, so it doesn't really apply there, right? So, or like one of my favorites, it says, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. You teach a man to fish, he'll eat for his life. My little spin on that, if you teach a man to fish, you can make a million dollars selling him fishing gear the rest of his life. So, but this is this idea. These are practical ways just to get through this thing called life. And so secondly, we're not just going to be practical. We're also going to be formative, formative. This is about spiritual formation, not just what I do. Here's why that's important. Um, one of the tensions is, is, like with reading Proverbs, is it starts to feel like fortune cookie theology. And what I mean by that is like we'll, we'll like land in a, in a little verse and we'll go, oh, wow, that's a great insight. I need to file that away for later, right? No, good little thing to know here. Okay. Here's, here's the tension with that that we just need to acknowledge is that none of you could remember what was written on the last fortune cookie that you had from your favorite Chinese restaurant, can you? Because it's not meant to be that way. They're the little quippy, pithy sayings, right? And if we're not careful, our reading of Proverbs can slip into that. Here's the point. The main thrust of Proverbs isn't what I need to do. It's who I need to become. Proverbs is not about changing my behavior. It's about changing me. And so let me caution you over the next few weeks. Don't just look for interesting insights that you can write down. Aim higher, dig deeper, and let's ask God to use these next six weeks to form us into the people who live the way that he talks about in his word. Okay, so those are the first two things. We're going to be practical, we're going to be formative, and then third thing, we're going to be Christ-centered. We're going to be Christ-centered. Here's the reason behind that. That may surprise you because Proverbs is buried in the folds of the Old Testament, and Jesus doesn't really show up until the New Testament, right? Here's how this works for me. Um, The longer I read Proverbs and I get this watercolor sketch image of what the wise life looks like, how to use my words well, the money that God has loaned me well, conflict, parenting, all this stuff, and I get this picture of what a wise life looks like, I arrive at this point where I just go, I need help. And that's why most people don't read Proverbs is we feel convicted. (laughs) We go, oh my gosh, I'm not that way. I just want to stay away from this thing. And so here's the point. Proverbs is most beneficial for you if you have a relationship with Jesus. Otherwise, it's just good advice. And it is good advice. It is. You can read Proverbs as a non-believer and go, good. But it's designed to be so much more than that. Without Jesus, Proverbs is like a can of Coke that lost its fizz. It just kind of falls flat. It's like, eh, okay, cool. But with Jesus, it's this deep, formative, transformational thing in our life. And so you can expect every week that we are going to point to Jesus, because that's what we do. We're Christians. And so we see him as a thread in all of Scripture. Um, one of the challenges with preaching Proverbs, and this is the last thing, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Um, 
One of the challenges of preaching Proverbs is how it's arranged, right? I love preaching stories. If you attend North Canton Chapel for a long time, you know that's kind of my space. I love stories because they flow, and they're all in one chunk. Proverbs, it is. It's like a little bit of hunt and peck stuff. Like, how do you get at this thing? And so um, for those of us that are going to be preaching and teaching through this series, um, we've done the work of kind of arranging these things by topic. And so what that means for you, though, is uh, if you have a digital copy of God's Word on your phone, or if you're watching at home and you've got something on your phone, or if you've got a printed copy of God's Word, your thumbs are going to be a little busy. So we're going to be bouncing around a little bit. So I just want to caution you for that. Right? There's no table of contents for Proverbs. It's meant to be read over a lifetime. So... Enough context, here we go. Three principles about words and three applications. First principle, principle number one, words are powerful. Words are powerful. Proverbs teaches us that our words have power to do two things, to bless and to curse. Our words are powerful, to bless and to curse. So let's take a look at this first one, blessing. This is Proverbs 16, verse 24. Here's what he says. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. What kind of words? Gracious words. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. This is a great example of Solomon, who wrote most of Proverbs, by the way. We'll learn more about him in the coming weeks. He uses this form of poetry called simile. Simile. And simile is like a comparison that usually uses the the words like or as. And so as we're walking through Proverbs, have your antenna up for this comparison. Okay? And so what's he saying here? We're taking something unfamiliar, gracious words. What are they like, Solomon? What, What would that be like? He takes this unfamiliar, deep, and powerful thing, and he says what it's like using a common image or something that we know, something that's familiar. In this case, what are these gracious words like? They're sweet. How sweet? Like a what? Like a honeycomb. That's a very familiar image to his audience here. But not only that, as he says, those words, they're also like health to a body. A good meal, a good night's sleep on a soft bed, no worries. Good words can be like that. What a beautiful thought that is in our world as cold and as dispassionate and as disconnected, and as conflictual as our world is. Think about that. Your words can be sweetness and life and goodness. But there's an underside. Our words not just have the power to bless, but also to curse. Take a look at Proverbs 15, verse 4. A gentle tongue is like a tree of life. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now here he's not using comparison as much. He does up front. He says, this, this wonderful word, this gentle tongue, like gracious words. What's he say it's like here? Not like a honeycomb, it's like a what? A tree of life, this blossoming, flourishing, growing, self-sustaining thing. That's what your words can be. And then Solomon uses another word, but. So here, as we walk through Proverbs, pay attention not just to these comparisons, but also contrast. And our clue is that three-letter word, but. He says, well, On one hand, your words are like a blossoming, flourishing, life-giving tree of life. But on the other hand, oh gosh, perverseness in it. In what? In our tongue, in our words. Perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Ouch. That's a tough one. I love that word, though, perverseness, because what he means in there 
the Hebrew word is a, is a twisting, a wrenching, a distortion of purpose for which it was created. It's a really great Hebrew word. And part of what it means is you were created to actually be a blessing. You were given the ability to have words so that you can be a blessing to others. But instead, something happens in our life, doesn't it? Things get twisted. Instead of gracious words that lead to human flourishing, our words also have the power to become like nails on a chalkboard or like a fork scraping the bottom of a ceramic bowl. You're just like, oh, gosh. People wince to the point of a broken spirit. I don't want to be that, do you? But I've seen it. I've seen it as a husband when I say something thoughtless and it just flies out of my mouth and I see Mandy's face when I say it. And like her face just falls. I had the power to break her spirit. I see it as a, as, a, as a father, as a dad. You parents know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You say something and it was just like, how did those words fly out of my mouth so quickly? And you just look at your kids and their faces just go Poof. In all of our relationships, you have the power to break somebody's spirit. Think about that. Wow, how powerful our words are. Now, here's why this first principle is so helpful, especially for me, is because often I don't realize the power of my words until they're already out of my mouth. Anybody with me on that one? I say something, and then I spend so much time stamping out the flames, trying to control it, trying to put out the damage, but the damage is already done. And so Solomon cautions us, this principle number one, is that words can be powerful to bless or to curse. Principle number two, not just can words have power, but principle number two, words can cost us. Words can cost us. Take a look in Proverbs chapter 10. Go back a couple, a little bit. Proverbs chapter 10, look in verse 19. He says this, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Oh, boy. Doesn't that sound like something just so wise? There's experience behind that, don't you think? Slide on down to Proverbs 29, verse 20. It seems to be saying the same thing. We're going to look at both of these a little closer. Here's what he says in Proverbs 29, verse 20. He says, you see a man who's hasty in his words. There's more hope for a fool than for him. It's kind of funny, we were going over these verses this morning and making sure they showed up on the slides and make sure everybody was okay. And Micah, whose last name is Hasty, was standing right here and he goes, <gasps> like, no, it's not just you. You're not hasty in your words. Let's take a look at these. First, Proverbs 10, 19. This is somebody who just can't stop talking. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. He offers them a caution and then you see the contrast again. He says, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So there's two types of people. There's the kind of guy who just can't stop talking, and then the guy who knows how to close his mouth when he needs to. And then Solomon does something really interesting. He says, well, they're going to have their own consequence. The one who talks too much usually says things that they regret, but the one who knows how to close their mouth when they need to usually is better for it. So what does that mean for us? Usually, usually... It's easier to sin by your speech than by your silence. Ouch. <laughs> this is so practical. This is thousands of years old, but it just matters so deeply. Let's take a look at the second proverb that talks about how our words cost us. Go back over to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, verse 20. Here's what he says again. He says, you see a man who's hasty in his words. There's more hope for a fool than for him. 
So here Solomon's doing something different. He's not doing compare or contrast. He's talking about consequence. There's no like or as. There's no but here. But now he's saying, here's what will inevitably happen to this person. Consequences in Proverbs work like this. There's the reality that's easily seen, and then there's the future that's sure to follow. The reality that's easily seen, and then the future that's sure to follow. This is how Proverbs sets these things up. And so what's the reality that's easily seen? The man who's hasty in his words. It's like quick draw McGraw. Fire from the hip. Think outside. Confession. I'm an external processor. Happens to me. Somebody who is very comfortable speaking emotionally. This is what we see. But then he offers us the consequence. He says, look... There's more hope for a fool than for him. That Hebrew word for hope, maybe your translation says prospects. A fool has better prospects than somebody who is quick with their words. It's kind of like if someone was in a job interview and you go, yeah, this, this guy's going places. You meet somebody and you go, man, she just has some amazing ability. And so what's the principle underneath this one? This idea that words can cost us. For the one who speaks without thinking, their future is stifled. There's a ceiling on where their life will take them. There's opportunities they won't have. There's things they won't be able to enjoy. Life that can't happen. Now, why is that true? Because we all know that rash speech cannot be easily remedied. Oh, gosh. Now that we're all feeling guilty, let's crank the knife another twist. Principle number three. Here we go. Principle number three. And this is probably the deepest, and in my mind, it's the hardest. Words reveal our heart. Words reveal our heart. Go back to Proverbs 15. We're going to take a look at Proverbs 15, verse 2. It says this, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pours forth folly. You caught the contrast there, right? You saw it. He used the word but. This guy and this guy, or this girl and this girl. But what I love most about this proverb is that phrase, The mouth of fools pours forth folly. What that is is a person with an open mouth and just a river of ridiculousness just pouring out of it. It's like great poetry, isn't it? You're like, I know people like that. Yeah, I can be like that. Gosh, so hard. But watch what he does here. Solomon does something really interesting that we need to catch. He stopped talking just about what we do. And he has started talking about who we are. Do you notice that? He talks about the wise and the fool. He's talking about two different people. Something's happening here that's rooted in here. Who I am here finds its expression here. Slide on down to verse 7. Proverbs 15, verse 7 says something very similar. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. The hearts of fools. Why didn't he say lips there? Because our words reveal our hearts. Here's the point. What I speak reveals who I am. What I post, what I share, what I say, what I text, what I type reveals who I am. It's just this principle. You can't argue with it, Proverbs says. This is the way it works. Is what I'm saying, writing, texting, posting, pointing to God's wisdom or to Brannon's wisdom? Oh, When I communicate, am I representing God's heart or am I more concerned about people understanding me? 
Does what I say to people, around people, about people, align with God's heart for people? Here's why this is important. We need to understand that words are not these disconnected, fleeting things. Words have their roots in who I am. If someone says wise things, it's usually because they're wise. If someone sounds like a fool, it's usually because they are a fool. And here's where we get tripped up. So many of us say, well, I need to start saying wise things. I need to stop saying foolish things. And the beauty of the gospel is, no, that's not the problem. What comes out of here isn't the problem. This just reveals the true problem, which is down in here. Jesus talked like this. I want to read this one for you. It's going to show up on the screens. This is Matthew 12, 33, and it shows up in the message translation, or the message interpretation. So let's put this one up back there. Matthew 12, 33. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you grow a healthy tree, you'll pick healthy fruit. Make sense? If you grow a diseased tree, you'll pick up worm-eaten fruit. The fruit tells you about the tree. And then he narrows and he talks to this audience that was very, very contentious and they didn't care for Jesus a whole lot. Here's what he says. He says, you, you have minds like a snake pit. How do you suppose what you say is worth anything when you're so foul-minded, he says. He goes on. He pushes it even further. He says, it's your heart. It's not the dictionary that gives meaning to your words. A good person produces good deeds and words season after season. And then listen, he continues, an evil person is a blight on the orchard. Let me tell you something. Every one of these careless words is going to come back to haunt you. There will be a time of reckoning. Words are powerful. Take them seriously. Words can be your salvation. Words can also be your damnation. You're like, oh, gosh. Quick story before we talk about what we're supposed to do with this. So probably about um, three years ago, uh, our washer and our dryer at home both died. Don't you love it when life gives you that? You're like, oh, sweet. Same time, this is just marvelous. And um, so all joking aside, I'm a little bit of a cheapskate, and so I, I have a real problem. I'm talking about money next week, so I will bear more of my soul then. But I have a real problem buying new stuff, so I'm going to go, well, I'll hop on Craigslist and see if I can find something, right? And so Mandy wanted the ones that were like the open front kind of cool thing, and I'm like, all right, cool, we'll go find one of those. And so I found a good deal, right? And uh, so I texted the guy. He was up in Akron, and I said, yeah, I'd just love to come take a look at them. And I got there. These things are in amazing shape, and I had them turn them on and like check everything, and they're working great and uh, awesome. One problem, uh, they were stacked on top of each other on the third floor apartment, and we were going to have to cart them down together through the back staircase. I thought they would maybe be in your garage or something, but okay, it's all right, we're getting a good deal, here we go, right? And so I'm kind of like, trying to keep my stuff together. All the while, down in here, this like thing starts churning, and I'm like, "Ah, okay, whatever. Good deal, all right, I can get it. So load them up in the back of my pickup, starts raining, that's sweet. So I'm driving down I-77, just like, don't tell me I'm alone in this. And you're laughing because you're with me. You've done this type of stuff, right? So we get home, and um, you know, I called Mandy. I'm like, hey, these are going to be great. Like, they look perfect. They're going to fit. It's going to be awesome. And sure enough, they fit. They're awesome. And so I have my idea. I'm going to pull the truck into the garage, and our garage is like this. And then we have like two concrete steps, and then there's the laundry room, Okay. And so I devised this wonderful idea of my little makeshift ramp. I'm going to put these things on uh, like those furniture dollies, those little four-wheel jobbers, and I'm just going to kind of like, I don't know, just figure it out, okay? Such a man moment, right? So 
I'm doing this, and so um, I've got the downside of the washer, and Mandy's got the upside. She's supposed to, like, steer it. I'm supposed to push it. And Hannah, our daughter, who was, like, nine at the time, comes out to watch. And so, oh, gosh. And so we're getting this thing up here, and right when this thing slips off of my makeshift ramp, something slips out of my mouth. Yeah. I'm not going to say what it was because there's kids here. It was not one of my proudest moments as a dad. And I looked over at Hannah. Hannah is standing on the front, the first step of our garage. And like her face just went. And like all these crystalline images she had of like her dad who loves Jesus and like her pastor dad and like just everything's imploding. I'm like, she ran away up into the house, all the way up into her room. And now I'm sitting here with this like washer like this. I look over at Mandy and she goes, yeah, you're probably going to have to go fix that. I'm like, okay, all right. So like we get the thing all sitting in there. And I said, Mandy, I'll be back in a minute. I go upstairs to Hannah's room. And I thought we were going to have like this little Danny Tanner moment from Full House where like you sit down and like hold her hand and it's all going to be okay. And instead what happened was I said, Hannah, um, hon, I should not have said what I said like I was angry and I was frustrated and I am so sorry, honey. Like that was so wrong. And I'm picturing like she's going to tell all her Sunday school class and like the elders are going to hear about it. I'm going to lose my job. And I'm like, ah. But here's what she says. She looks at me and she goes, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> Dead serious. And so I'm like, well, there's no going back from that. So here's the point. The problem wasn't what came out of my mouth, as bad as that was. The problem was what was in my heart. Because in that moment, her words were right on. In that moment, Jesus was not the Lord of my life. I was. In that moment, Jesus was not in control of my mouth. I was, or I thought I was. And all my mouth revealed was this fomenting heart of anger and frustration that had been brewing all day, and then just out it comes. That's what Jesus means. So, what are we supposed to do with this business about words now that we're all sitting in this collective guilt cesspool? Everybody in this room and everybody online, we've all done this. You've all said things you wish you could regret. Maybe even over the holidays. (laughs) We've all blown it. And if you're not too proud to admit it, you probably feel like you're going to do it again at some point in your life. So what do you do? So in response to these principles, three quick points of application. Principle number one, because words are powerful, we should be intentional. Because words are powerful, we should be intentional. Basically, slow down and think. Slow down. It's very difficult for external processors like me. I'm going to sound older than my age here, but one of the hazards of living in an instant communication world, thanks to this little rectangle in my pocket, is that when it comes to communication, especially outbound communication, what I say, what I post, what I write, what I think is all out here, when it comes to outbound communication, ability often exceeds character. I can say things that I don't know that I shouldn't say. My ability exceeds character. It's like where a 16-year-old has been given keys to a Ferrari for his birthday and it's loaded with racing fuel. We don't know how to handle this stuff. And I'm not talking about students here, actually. Like, I love when I see students interacting online. This isn't a generational thing. This has nothing to do with demographics. The intentionality is not an age thing. It's a character thing. 
So in his really helpful, game-changing book called The Tech-Wise Family, author Andy Crouch makes this quick, passing, but really helpful comment. Here's what he says. Technology is only helpful if it becomes the person we're meant to be. Isn't that good? Technology is only helpful when it helps us become the person we are meant to be. Begs the question, how do I know who I'm supposed to be? Often, our words trip us up on our way to asking and answering that question. This is about formation, remember. So let me be practical. Three really quick points when it comes to being intentional with our words. And then we'll move on to the next thing. Three things. How to be intentional with your words. They all start with the same letter, P. Here you go. Pace. Pace. How quickly am I communicating? Am I hasty or am I emotional in my words or am I well thought out? Pace. Intentionality means pace. Second thing, posture. What's the spirit of my communication? Am I edgy? Am I pointed? Or am I graceful? Am I restorative? What's the posture of what I'm saying? And then last, what's the purpose? Pace, posture, and purpose. Why am I even saying anything at all? Am I speaking so that I can be known? Or am I speaking to bless others? So that's this first point of application. Because our words are powerful, we should be intentional. Secondly, though, because our words cost, we should spend them wisely. Because our words cost, we should spend them wisely. I don't need to tell you that our world is divisive in all the possible ways that I can think of. People lock horns and pick up arms at any potential argument in these days. And that saddens me. It's probably you, too. Conversation is no longer comfortable. It's become combustible. But here's what really troubles me is that, that, that reality of combustible conversation now has actually created another unseen thing. We have two extremes, and most of you in this room or anybody watching online, we may fall into either of these buckets. Some of us retreat, and we go, well, man, if, if I don't say anything, if I don't post anything, if I don't interact, if I just kind of put my head in the ground, well, then... I will save myself the stress of inevitable conflict. That's one extreme. Incidentally, that's mine. That's my tendency. But then there's the other extreme, which is, well, maybe if I post more, like, here's the silver bullet. If they knew this thing, if they understood this thing, if they got this insight, then we wouldn't have any conflict. And so we'd charge in. But have you noticed, neither extreme is working? Because silence, where there could be Christ's hope doesn't bring anything. Increased volume only brings anger where there could be Christ's love. And so neither extreme is working. Let me describe what I believe to be a third option. I believe that the church has an opportunity, like no other community in our world, to spend our words wisely on what matters most. The church is a group of people who say with our lives, which includes our words, our posts, our shares, all this stuff, we say that above all worldly conversation, passing divisions, and fleeting and fatal distractions, that one thing, one cause, one person matters more than anything else, Christ and Christ alone. He's our Lord and he's our Master. That Jesus died to save sinners. The church's task is to keep the gospel intact for a world that desperately needs it. And so with such a great need, why would we lend our words to anything else? Right? You've been changed, right? You've been changed by Jesus? That's your story. When Jesus changes you, everything else changes, doesn't it? That's what we read in the New Testament. 
So we get to talk about human dignity like nobody else does because we know the author of human life. We get to talk about unity like nobody else does because we know the one who destroys worldly divisions. We get to talk about hope like nobody else does because we know the one who killed hopelessness. If the church has meaningful influence in the coming culture, and I think it's an if, I don't think it's a sense anymore. I think it's an if. If the church will have meaningful influence in the coming culture, it will be because we spend our words wisely and we lend them to what matters most. We don't make much of Jesus here every day to everyone because there's nothing else to talk about. We make much of Jesus every day to everyone because he's the only one worthy of talking about. He's changed our lives. So that's the second thing. Because words can cost us, we should spend them wisely. And then lastly, and this is probably the most important in my mind, because words reveal our hearts, we need Jesus. I'm not just talking to those of you who are on the fence about Jesus or you say yourself you're an unbeliever or a doubt. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking about those you've been walking with Jesus for decades. Here's the thing. Hear me out. God does not want you to control your tongue. God does not want you to stop saying mean things. God does not want you to start saying nice things. God does not want you to post more thoughtfully or engage more gracefully or listen more generously. Those are good things to do. But Christianity never starts with doing. Christianity starts with what has been done. Doing more things is not what brings meaning and beauty and goodness to our world and into our lives. Doing those things just makes us better behaved functional pagans. Proverbs 4.23, gosh, this is the one that just like, it's, it's such a hard one to get over for me. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why is that important? Because whether we're talking about words, money, conflict, parenting, relationships, or decision making, there's bad news and there's good news. Bad news. We are not blank slates. We, are, we don't possess the spiritual wherewithal to look at two decisions and go, well, this one honors God and this one honors me. This one is in the way of Jesus. This is in the way of Brandon. This is the wise way and this is the foolish way. On our own, we don't possess the spiritual ability to choose the right way. Why? Because my heart, this thing that drives my life, is wicked and dark and it can't be trusted. That's not a very popular thought to say these days when we're told to follow our heart. No. Left on my own, like I'm going to take the choice that seems easy, feels easy, looks good, and for the short term, feels great. I don't need great advice. I need a great savior. I don't need good behavior. I need a new heart. I don't need behavior modification. I need a complete transformation. My heart, this place from which all life throws, is bad and it's wicked. It can't be trusted. And until I get a new heart, or to borrow a phrase from Jesus, until I am born again, all that Proverbs offers me is behavior modification. Pavlov's dogs all over again. Ring a bell. I'll salivate. If I deviate, shock me with a collar. And a lot of churches and a lot of people play that game. Like, don't do the bad thing, do the right thing, and you will be okay. Jesus doesn't play that game. Mercifully, thankfully. Jesus loves you too much to divorce action from affection. Jesus loves you too much to sever what you do from what you love. Jesus loves you too much to separate what I actually do from what I want to do. Proverbs 4.23 this business of keeping watch over your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life, won't let me off the hook with good behavior. 
Jesus' light shines brighter, his arrow aims truer, and his knife cuts deeper. Until I get at why we want to light somebody up. Until we get at why I want to gossip or slander or withhold blessing or use harsh words. Until I get at the motivations under the actions, Proverbs is just a pile of crumbled up fortune cookies on the floor. And so here's the dirty, sneaky little secret. Our hearts want those things because our hearts are craving the short-term fulfillment that they bring. It feels good to light somebody up online, doesn't it? For a minute, until you have to delete it. It feels good to have that conversation in your car with the person that you're really afraid to have the conversation with, but since the doors are closed, wham! Right? It feels good. Feels good to withhold blessing, keep the upper hand, gather power. Our hearts want those things because we're craving the short-term fulfillment that they bring until, until, until somebody changes my heart. Until that fulfillment comes from somewhere else, from someone else. And so let me ask you, have you ever heard of anybody who's promised to change your heart? Do you know anyone who can get underneath the motivations to change the motivations? Have you ever heard of anybody who can take a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh? Anybody who can make dead men live, blind men see, lame men leap. Anybody who can turn Saul's into Paul's can take life takers and move them into life givers. When Jesus said in John 10.10 that I have come that you might have life to the full, what he meant was... I have not come that you would behave. I have come that you might be new. And so here, the threshold of the new year, there's two ways you can change your life. First way, it's the way that everybody chooses, and it never works. It's from the outside in. Start doing the right things. Never works. And then there's the second way you can change your life, which is the way that Jesus talks about. This is the road less traveled or the path that few find if you want to take Jesus' words literally, it's from the inside out. Doing the right thing is easy. Fake it till you make it. Just hide your sin. Kind of like keep a lid on that pressure cooker. Keep your daughter further in the house next time so she doesn't hear you. Doing the right thing is easy, isn't it? It's kind of manicure your life. Wanting to do the right thing, though, that's impossible without Jesus. So here's where we're going to end. Um, the band's going to come on. I'm going to pray. and We need to cast this out here just so you know where we're headed. We're going to sing a song called The Solid Rock. It's got this chorus, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Why do we say that? Why is that so important? Because we have nothing else to stand on. And So maybe you're hearing me this morning and you go, Yeah, I, I still want to do the stuff that I know I shouldn't do. I really want to do it. And it's driving me crazy because I'm trying to hold it all in. This is your opportunity to say, Jesus, change me. Jesus, fix me. Jesus, I don't want to sin anymore, but more importantly, God, I just don't want that distance from you. I want to be made new. And Jesus will do that for you. Absolutely, starting today. Hell canceled and heaven guaranteed. Let me pray. Lord, we just say thank you again so much for the hope of the gospel. Say thank you for the cross. Say thank you for Jesus who went there to serve us in our great need. God, when we didn't deserve it, as our words continually show, as our lives and our hearts continually reveal to us, Lord, just make us new. Continue to renew us, Lord. We love you. We say thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.